Lord, we thank you that your word is active and alive. We thank you that your word reaches us today with your living Holy Spirit, by your Holy Living Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that in that spirit we would receive your word. Liberate us, Lord, from those things that bind us. Educate us, Lord, about those things that confuse us. Enlighten us in those areas. And Lord, activate us in our faith. Strengthen us that in standing upon your holy word, we might rise up upon our most holy faith in you, in your word, in your promise. Let your word be fulfilled in us. For those, Lord, that might be part of today's teaching, hearing it, studying along with us, who are struggling to know you, who don't know if you're really there, who haven't yet made a decision to give themselves to you, or who are in a crisis point of their own, who are at a place where they could go in either direction and today could be decisive. Lord, let your word bring life today. Shine your light on the right path, the one that follows you, that trusts in you, that leads to you, that leads to life. And in that life, in your life, in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Everybody agreed I was terrible. It was my first time bowling. It was my church youth group. I think I was in junior high. I think it was a combined junior-senior high event, which made it all the more humiliating that everybody agreed I was terrible. Because there I was, some seventh grader, with everyone up to the seniors in high school laughing at how badly I bowled. Now, I'd never bowled before, and I must say, not everybody was cruel. I think everybody laughed, but some people said, hey, you've never bowled before. You'll get better. They were wrong. I'm still terrible. I haven't bowled in years, but I'm sure that if we did go bowling together, I wouldn't bowl you over unless I did it literally because my bowling ball will not stay in that lane. I can probably bowl laterally better than, than I can down to the pins. It was something I had kind of looked forward to because my brothers were all older than I. They had been part of youth group events, and bowling happened to be, for whatever reason, one of those things that in my youth group it occurred about two or three times a year we would do a bowling event, sometimes on a Sunday afternoon, sometimes in the evening. And I had seen bowling on TV. I don't know if bowling is still on TV, probably on ESPN or ESPN2 or something like that. But when I was a kid, it was on Wide World of Sports. Remember that? The Agony of Defeat? That was the agony I was feeling in the bowling alley that day. Yeah, so it used to be on on Saturday afternoons, and I always thought it was kind of boring, but I also thought it must be fairly easy because those people all bowled really well. They made it look easy. They just slide that ball down the aisle, and all the pins would come down almost every time, strike after strike. How hard could it be, right? You just roll it straight down that aisle just down that lane, no big deal. And I have to admit, there was a certain satisfaction that I found while watching bowling on TV, which, by the way, this reveals the fact that we only had three channels <laughs> and also how desperately dedicated I was to watching television, even when there was nothing on that I wanted to watch. If there's nothing but bowling, I'll watch bowling. I won't turn the TV off. No, I'll watch bowling. And I felt this kind of thrill every time I saw all those pins come down. It was a delight when I watched that I never got to experience when I bowled because everybody agreed I was terrible.
Now, I was really great at one thing. In fact, if I can use an almost blasphemous phrase, tongue-in-cheek, I was the god of the gutter balls. Because one thing that my bowling ball always could find was the gutter. Not just one, but the other. Now, you know how bowling works, right? There's this wooden lane, and it's nicely polished. It gleams. You can practically see your face in everything in a bowling alley. You can see it in your bowling ball and in the lane. And on either side of that lane, there's gutters, just like on either side of a street. Divots that run on either side of the lane. In fact, you could say that the gutters essentially define the lane. If it weren't for the gutters, there'd really be no game. Gutters make the game. They make the challenge, which is to get your ball all the way down that lane and knock down as many of the pins as possible, ideally all of them, there's 10 of them generally, without going into that gutter. Because once it goes into the gutter, in the gutter it remains, right? It's stuck in that route, in that rut, and it's not going to get out. Gravity holds it in place as it rolls out of sight. And you're points are lost forever yeah i was the god of the gutter balls i could always find the gutter i could never get the pin well there's a kind of parallel in this and i want to share a little bit in an introductory moment on gutter balls and god's grace because when we are talking about the law And Paul talks about the law a lot in his writings, and especially in the book of Romans, although there's other places where Paul makes extensive commentary on the law. And we're going to talk a bit today about what that means. I think this metaphor of the lane and the goal and the problem of gutters gives us a sense of how we might well understand God's grace. You know, as I mentioned, the gutters define the game. Without the gutters, there's no real game. But there is still a goal. The goal is to get the pins down. But imagine a bowling alley without gutters. How would you know which pins were the ones for you, right? The gutters define a purpose. They define that purpose by defining what's away from that purpose. How do you miss the mark in bowling? The gutters show you. The gutters tell you. And the gutters will keep you from fulfilling your purpose. But the purpose is not simply to stay out of the gutters. Boy, it felt that way to me. My bowling exercise went from try to knock down 10 pins to try to knock down any pins to try to stay out of the gutter. I mean, I was happy if my ball went all the way down the lane, even if it didn't knock over any pins. I was like, it didn't go in the gutter. (laughs) which didn't happen very often because I was the god of the gutter balls. But nevertheless, the point is there was something beyond just staying out of the gutters. The point was ultimately to score those pins going down and to win the game. The law operates in a way like this. Now, when I say the law here, I'm talking about that special revelation of God that comes to us through his word, the scriptures, that comes from his pronouncements to human beings. All the way back in the garden, when God said, you can eat of any tree except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he defined a gutter. He said, if you go to that and partake of that one, you've missed the mark, and you'll never achieve the goal. The goal, the purpose of God was life. And our forefather and foremother, Adam and Eve as we know them, missed that and went into the gutter. And oh, what a gutter it was. And oh, what a gutter it remains. The gutter 
of grotesque loss, curse, anger, fear, anxiety, hatred, bloodshed, warfare, violence, deception, destruction, disease, death. Death. That's the gutter. And the law reveals it. Now, it's not that the law is necessarily digging the gutter, but the law is showing you where it is. And interestingly enough, gutters on either side help us to understand something about how Paul is talking about the law in the book of Romans particularly. And he really references it. In fact, the Bible references it this way all the time. That there's kind of two directions that you can fall off of the route, that you can fall away from the path, that you can miss the mark. One gutter is to try to achieve the goal according to the terms of the law. Can you? I can't have that. <laughs> We've got a very excited child running around, which is nice, but for me, it's a bit of a distraction. Thanks. So the, the one gutter is trying to achieve the goal in our own power. But interestingly enough, by trying to fulfill the law, according to the terms of the law, what we find is that we fail the law. As many times as we try to achieve success and perfection, it's like me in that bowling alley. I'm trying to stay out of that gutter, but somehow I keep falling into it. Now, someone might say, well, you know what? Then forget that law and just live according to your own inner convictions. In the book of Judges, which we're going to study in an extended series later this year, by God's grace, that's what we are told that people did. Even though they had the law of God, they continually lived according to their own idea of what was right or wrong. It goes back to that same sort of Adam and Eve notion. We know the difference between right and wrong, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, according to the book of Judges. And that's a reality in our world today. And some of us fall into that gutter too, because by ignoring the law, or determining that we'll rewrite the law according to our own will and our own way, we also miss the mark. We also fail to achieve reaching the goal that God has designed for us. So if you can't do it by observing the law because you fail, and you can't do it by ignoring the law because then you also fail, how will you do it? You won't. But God's grace will enable you to. The second time we went bowling, we got into the bowling alley and my eyes sparkled with the glorious sight of something I had never seen before. Gutter bumpers. Have you ever seen these? Gutter bumpers? They put them in for little kids. They're like these sort of like, uh, almost like inflated tubes that run down the gutters, that fill the gutters, or sometimes they're covers. And in other words, the gutters are gone. Well, they're not really gone. They're still there. In fact, it's important that you still know where your lane is. How would you know your goal if you don't know the lane? How would you know your purpose unless there were something defining how that purpose is missed, right? But these, these gutter bumpers, help you to reach your purpose because of a lack of aptitude and ability on your part. We got in and the uh, owner said, oh, sorry, we've got to take all of those out because we had a little kid tournament in here earlier. You know, toddlers were playing or something. I don't know how young they were, but I was saying, don't take them out. I want those. I want to bowl that way. Now, somebody would say, well, that's not very effective bowling, but I'll tell you, it's very effective living when God's grace fills the gutters. You see, God's grace doesn't come to deny the law or obscure it, but to fill it. 
to fill it in such a way that you are able to reach the goal, which is connection with him, which is life everlasting, which is righteousness and holiness. And it's okay that you need help. Yeah, it's just for kids. And what God has said is, by my grace, you'll be my kids, and I will help you to win the game. Now, the reality is, those gutter bumpers are there to teach people to bowl better. And so the law came also to teach us to live better. But grace comes to enable us to live righteously beyond anything we are able to do. Maybe you feel like I do, that you're constantly moving from one gutter to the other. One time you roll your ball down the legalistic highway, trying to achieve, and you still fail, and you beat yourself up. The next time you ignore the law, or you go on a kind of cheap grace. I can do this because God's grace allows it, and you realize you're still going into the gutter. But today, in the message about the law of faith, I want to invite you to rely upon the blessing of God's grace that enables you to live within the lanes of the benefit of God's gutters, the law. In other words, God's grace does not come to deny the law, but to fulfill it. God's grace comes to you not so that you no longer have to care about the law, but so that the law can be alive within you. Amen? Is this resonating with you? Are you getting it? I want you to think about the gutters in your life this week. And if you happen to fall into one or the other, don't ignore it, but turn to God about it and say, will you, please, Lord, by your grace, help me to be in the center of your will, in the center of your purpose, because God wants to make you more than victorious in him. Now, when we're talking about law, it's important that you and I understand that this word actually operates in a lot of different ways in the ancient world. And quite frankly, it still operates in a lot of different ways in our modern world. So the English word translated law that you're going to hear over and over again in the book of Romans and that we've been talking about comes, generally speaking, from the Greek term nomos. Nomos. You know, when Paul talks about people who are living apart from the law or without the law, he utilizes the Greek form of negation. That is, how do you make something a negative or an opposite in Greek? If Christ... Christos is the anointed one. Antichrist is the non-anointed one, the one who actually opposes Christ, right? If nomos is law, antinomos is without or against the law. Aninomos, animosity, our word animosity, antagonism, opposition, a fighting attitude comes from that aninomos root, without the law, against the law, right? But nomos in the Greek is really being utilized to transfer, translate or transfer into Greek the Hebrew term that Paul no doubt has in mind, which is Torah, Torah, right? Now, in the Greek translation, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament as we know it, which is called the Septuagint, nomos is utilized to translate Torah. So when Paul's using nomos in, uh, for instance, his letter to the Romans, we know that he has Torah in mind. But Torah itself, just like our English word law, and nomos for that matter, can have a variety of meanings. It can have a very general meaning, simply guidance, or a little bit more specifically, a rule, right? If I say, you know, it's a law of nature that animals want to survive, 
Well, it's not that that's written somewhere. I mean, you can't go and pull out the compendium, the, the, the penal code of nature, and say animals want to survive. But what we're saying is it's a principle that we can observe being a guiding principle in all organic life, right? If I say that the, uh, the, a day is 24 hours, again, there's not some cosmic rule book that I can present to you that says section 74B.3A1 says that a day on earth is 24 hours, but rather it's an observation of a guiding reality or a, a, uh, an unbreakable reality, if you will. But there's more specific usage of the term Torah that can mean specifically a legal code. Now, in the ancient Hebrew tradition, the legal code is really embedded in the Torah. So Torah can mean the way of God's guidance and rule. It can mean the specific selection of scriptures. All of the Hebrew Bible is called the Torah. But the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the books of Moses or the Pentateuch, is the Torah of the Torah. And in that is the legal code, right? If you see Leviticus, for instance, there are very specific restrictions about how people are to live, how they are to behave, the priestly order of worship, and so forth. So also, if you and I say, well, is it against the law to do this? Or is there a law that says that I can't do this? Or there ought to be a law. We're talking about a literal legal code, something that lawyers and judges know about. And whether you and I know about it or not, the legal code applies. If you get pulled over for speeding in this state and you say the, the, the speed wasn't posted, that's not an excuse because the speed exists, the, the speed limit exists in the legal code whether you're aware of it or not and you're responsible for it. So then also, as I mentioned, the law can refer to everything that God has said and that by his spirit he has inspired to be written down. So Paul utilizes the term law in all of these ways and even in some others. There's a way of talking about the law that is the general revelation. Remember, we talked about that last week. In other words, things like I described, the way that animals behave, the nature of how the, the stars and the planets move. Everything that God has created gives us some indication of the orderliness and the intentionality of God, the, the, the value of life, the reality of death, um, how we are to operate. Even the things that I've talked about in a bowling alley are reflective of the law of general revelation, the law of gravity, the law of things in motion, right? Physical laws and so forth. But then there is also special revelation, the specific utterances of God, and most specifically, the scriptures. Paul also talks about an inner witness, right? He says people who live without the law still affirm that there is a law because inside they have an idea about what is right or wrong to do. And if they do the wrong thing, even if they say it's right inside, their conscience convicts them, right? Or if they fail to do something that they think they ought to do, their conscience convicts them. So there's a law or a set of laws at work in creation. There are the commands of God that are a special set of laws. And then there's the law living within us, our own inner conscience and conviction. All of these can be described as the law, but they're not all exactly the same, or at least the specialized notion that, that, that the speaker has in mind is important. Often the reference to the law in the book of Romans 
can be understood as simply reflecting God's total way of being. The way that God does things, the way that God is, his character, his nature, the way he calls us to be, the way he calls us to live. But there are other times where Paul has a more specialized reference in mind. So it's important for us to consider context. Now, I know you may feel like, and I mentioned this before, you may feel like, well, gee, are you pastor or professor? I think there's an overlap. I want to teach you and me as we study the word how better to understand what's being said. Because after all, how will you and I know the purpose of God unless we know how to interpret his word? And how will we know even how to interpret his word unless we read it? It's like what Paul says elsewhere. How will they know the Lord without his word? And how will they know the word unless someone preaches it? And how will you preach it unless you yourself know it? So the Lord helps you and I to understand it. Context is key. We need to look at everything that Paul is saying in the Roman, book of Romans, everything that the Holy Spirit intends, in order to properly understand what he's saying in any given moment and apply it correctly so that we can avoid going into the gutter and stay in the center of God's intended message of the text. Now, we talked last week, and I want to review just a little bit, this notion of dichotomy. I, I mentioned that there's a lot of ideas that I'm throwing at you, and that's part of why we're doing this extended series, so that the ideas can embed, they're like seed, that they can go down, take root, and grow over time. If you're joining the series with us today, I encourage you to go back and listen to prior messages and to track along with the series, because while every individual message will always, by God's grace and by his spirit, have a specific point of application and relevance for you, they really are enriched by understanding them together. This is a single letter that we're looking at. It is an extended argument, or that is an extended philosophical presentation of truth that Paul, by the Spirit, is making, not only to those ancient Romans, but to you and to I. And so we want to follow along with the ideas. Dichotomy is one of them. That's a division or a contrast between two things. Two things that are opposite, right? Like anim animo nomos and nomos. Christ and Antichrist. Or it can be two things that appear to be opposite. Or it can just be two things that are being put into opposition. Apples and oranges aren't really opposite, but we're, we're very familiar with that dichotomy, right? It's a way of describing two things that are different. It's not that apples are better than oranges or vice versa, but they are different. And the contrast allows us to consider their difference. So last week we looked at there were various recurring uh, thematic dichotomies that Paul utilizes, and some of them can be understood as bad or good. For instance, unbelief versus belief, doubt versus faith, etc. Those are clearly opposite, and one is good and one is bad. Sin is bad, righteousness is good. There's no variance or nuance there. But Paul also describes dichotomies in which Two things might be both good or both bad, or neither good or bad, but are being understood in opposition. And so we have to compare and consider these things. I'm moving quickly through these slides because we looked at them last week, but the idea in each of them I'm describing to you, and you can also find these online and look at them in more detail on your own later. So for instance, when Paul is comparing Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews of ancient Rome, with Gentile Christians, non-Jewish, or what he calls Greek, which is a way of describing the Hellenistic world of that time. They're, they're both Christians. They're both believers in the Lord. But there are differences in their ethnic background, their point of reference, their frame of reference. 
general revelation and special revelation. Both are good, but they are different. On the other hand, humanity debased in wickedness, that's bad. Humanity transformed in Christ, that's good. So when we come to law and grace, we have to decide, is Paul saying law is bad and grace is good? A lot of interpreters have fallen into that gutter because I want to tell you that's wrong. That's not what Paul is saying. And the idea that Paul is at odds with Jesus, which you might be surprised to know, many academics present this idea, and you'll find it in the world too. Well, Paul really created a new religion. Paul's teaching doesn't match Jesus's at all. Wrong, completely wrong. In fact, Paul's teaching is of Jesus. When people say that the book of Romans or other writings of Paul, Galatians, are at odds with the book of James, wrong. It's a misunderstanding of what's being presented. Paul is not saying law is bad and grace is good, but you'll say, but there's specific passages where he seems to say that. Remember, law can be interpreted in various ways, and we have to look at the context. But the overarching message of Paul is that the law of God is good, but that you and I are not able to achieve it. And so the grace of God, which is the heart of the law, which is the spirit of the law, enables us to reach the goal of the law, even if we falter. In God's bowling alley, even if you go in the gutter, he brings you out. He lifts you up. He pushes you on to the goal, to the prize, which is a goal and a prize that you've already received in him. Because the grace of God has already come to you. So law and grace is a dichotomy, but not one in which one is bad and one is good. But we are being told about different aspects of essentially the same thing. It's a dichotomy. Now, Paul presents these and many other elements of his case in a dialogue. And you know what a dialogue is. It's an exchange of ideas or opinions between two or more persons or entities. Groups can have dialogue. Right? If you have a business, maybe you've had to draft or receive a memorandum of understanding between various organizations. It's a dialogue between both of them. Here's what we understand. A contract is a dialogue. A simple conversation is a dialogue. Right? But what's interesting is, what do you have in a letter? How can you have a dialogue in a letter? One person is writing, and they're writing from a separation of time and space. Paul isn't physically present with the Romans. He's not physically present with you and I here today. He's not chronologically or temporally present with them, even as he's not present chronologically or temporally in the flesh with us today, although I'm sure he's one of those great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews describes. So how do you have a dialogue? Well, in ancient rhetoric, there was a form that allowed you to create or synthesize a dialogue without the other person necessarily being present and it's called diatribe. Now, this is real important. You and I have heard diatribe, and it, the way it's used in our modern context is somebody on a rant, right? We know about rants, right? We're good at rants. Somebody who's just complaining or antagonizing and railing against some subject or some person, but that's not the classical meaning of diatribe. In classical rhetoric, which is just describing a formal, functional, structured way of presenting a persuasive argument. Diatribe was exactly that, a persuasive argument, a, a case. When I say argument, don't think of it negatively, but rather like a lawyer in court or a teacher in a classroom or maybe even a pastor in the pulpit trying to present facts and information in a way that persuades you about their truth, their logic, their relevance. And in doing that, 
There are people who oppose those facts or oppose those ideas or oppose that philosophy. So there's a debate that's going to happen, right? And what Paul is doing is anticipating that debate. He knows his letter is going to arrive with people he's never met. But he also knows the arguments that are constantly raised against his presentation of the gospel. Well, what about this? That's wrong. I think this. The world says this. And so what Paul does is he bakes all of that into his argument. He puts it there in advance. Since he won't be able to do a Q&A with them, Romans is a living Q&A. Hallelujah. What a blessing that God has provided to us by his Holy Spirit, a Q&A with God. In fact, the whole Bible is kind of like that. You've got questions, the Bible has answers. But not just the Bible, the Lord who is speaking through the Bible. So Paul operates with this classic style so as to present his case in a way that it already anticipates what are the rebuttals, what are the refutations, what are the disagreements that it's going to encounter. In other words, what Paul is doing is the classic rhetorician's task to present a thesis, a basic pronouncement. This is, this is the idea that I'm presenting as true or valuable or that I'm going to test with you and in front of you. And then he anticipates the antithesis, right? The antithesis, antithetical arguments that will say what he is saying is wrong or has the wrong idea. In other words, Paul is going to show us the gutters as he's showing us the grace, the lane that leads to the purpose, the goal of God. And good thing that he does. Good thing that the word provides that to us so that you and I can know how to reach the mark by knowing in part how we might miss the mark. In fact, do you know that missing the mark is literally the Greek phrase for sin? When someone talked about sin in Greek, the word that was used means to miss the mark, like in archery. You're aiming at a target, and the arrow goes away from the target. Or, like me, if you're the god of the gutter balls, lowercase g, please. If you are a guy of the gutter balls or a gal of the gutter balls, then you know what it is to miss the mark. And you know how devastating and shameful that experience is. And each of us really knows what that is like in life. Paul is showing us those aspects of life and the law so that we will know the greater reality of God's grace leading us to the goal. So Paul utilizes diatribe in order to create a dialogue. And in that dialogue, he presents lots of different ideas, dichotomy, so that we're constantly seeing, don't fall into this extreme, don't fall into that extreme. Actually, everybody needs the fine tuning of God in order to reach the balanced way of living that God has in mind. Now, you can recognize this, and I'm calling this out to you because in days and weeks to come, you and I are going to see this over and over and over. In fact, even before I conclude today, looking at some of the material in chapters 2 and 3, you're going to see how you can recognize diatribe. One thing that he does is he raises rhetorical questions, right? We know about rhetorical questions. Usually today, when somebody mentions something about a rhetorical question, it means somebody like me who's talking on and on and asking questions and not giving you a chance to answer them because they're rhetorical questions. But really what I'm doing is I'm presenting questions that I presume you're considering in your mind. I guess I shouldn't use that for thinking, right? That's not a good... In your very sane, sound mind. And I'm also providing some standard answers. And Paul does the same thing. He raises a question and then provides an answer to it. For instance, in Romans 3, 
Paul says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? He's just talked about how the Jews, the Jewish people who had the law of God have nevertheless themselves failed to fulfill the law of God. And he's also talked about how Gentiles, non-Jews, sometimes by their own conscience, fulfill the law of God even though they didn't receive it. And so he's saying somebody who didn't receive the law but still fulfills it will judge you, someone who did receive the law, and doesn't fulfill it. And so then he's saying, not from himself, but he's imagining an audience saying, well, then what is the point in having the law of God and being one of the covenant people of God? What advantage is there in being Jewish? And he answers the question, right? Much in every way. So he's utilizing the anticipation of a question and providing his response. He does it again in the next couple of verses. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. You can recognize when he raises question, provides the answer, diatribe is at work. And oftentimes it's a pivot point. It's an inflection point for the argument to progress. In chapter 8, he does something similar. What then shall we say in response to all these great things that he's just listed about what God does by his Holy Spirit and through Christ? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here, He's answering the question with another question that is intended to prompt you and I to really consider the glorious grace of God. At other times, he will actually come right out and say, I'm presenting somebody else's argument so that we don't get confused and think, well, Paul seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth, which even now, today, like I said, academics and scholars who are supposed to be so knowledgeable, and some of them very much are, but some of them will say, well, Paul contradicts himself, and I think, are you not aware that he is presenting an argument that is in self based upon a consideration of the dichotomy of contradictions? So in uh, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 3, he says, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness. In other words, he's made an argument something along the lines of, if you fall into the gutter, it reveals the reality of the gutter. And if God comes and takes you out of the gutter and puts you back on the path, then actually your falling in the gutter became a testimony of God's greatness. It became a witness of who God is, the reality of the law and the reality of his grace. So if that's the case, why not go into the gutter all the time, right? Or should we say, hey, if I have no ability to stay out of the gutter, if that's the best that I can do, then how can God hold me accountable and blame me? And what Paul says here is, I'm presenting you with a human argument. I'm showing you what people would say. But then he goes on to say, that's not at all accurate. You're not at all understanding. Someone might argue, he says, following, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and increases his glory, well, then am I still to be blamed for being false? Why not say, as some slanderously claim we say, let's do evil that good may result? In other words, Paul's presenting the argument People are saying, well, if God's grace is real, I may as well sin all the more. And Paul says, some people actually think that's my argument, but I'm presenting it to you now so that you'll know that's not at all what I am saying. And when people say, well, that's the wrong thing to believe, and Paul is wrong for saying that, they're right to condemn that, but they're not right that that's what I'm saying. Now, I know it gets a little complicated, but are you tracking with me? You get the point? So he presents wrong ideas in order to enhance right ones. So dichotomy, dialogue, and diatribe. Will you say those three things? Dichotomy, dialogue, and diatribe. Those are three things that you and I will be coming up against over and over again, or I don't want to say coming up against. Let me rephrase that, that we'll be considering as we consider the text. Now, I want to briefly 
kind of give you a summary of this section of the scripture. Uh, I say briefly because I only have so much time, but also because a lot of the ideas that are talked about in this remaining portion, the end of the sermon, are ideas that we've already been talking about all the way up to this point. So I kind of want to connect the dots. I want to say, all right, these concepts that we've been considering, now let's see them at play in this specific sequence of scripture. This block of, of Romans, from the middle of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 3, is a building block for what we will look at together next week. Today we're talking about the law of faith. Next week we're going to talk about the faith of Abraham. Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. Abraham, who was the recipient of the law. God makes a covenant promise to Abraham, and yet Abraham operates by faith. So what we're talking about today, what we're talking about next week, what we'll be talking about in weeks to follow, they all connect. And the idea over and over again is the law has always been about leading us to faith, faith in God. Now, if we have the wrong idea about the law, then we're going to come up with wrong results about God's purpose. And we're going to be aiming at the wrong thing. We're going to be bowling in the wrong direction. We may think we're bowling for blessing, but we're bowling for bust if we have the wrong idea about who God is and what he says. So in the first section, we see how Paul talks about people who are under the law. Here he's talking about people who are living by the book, by the legal code, but they don't have the spirit. This is that gutter that says, I'm going to try and fulfill the law. And you know what? It's not just Jewish people of the past. It's Christians of today. It's you and me who talk about grace and sing songs about grace and live with guilt and condemnation inside and shame outside and frustration and fear and anxiety because we are trying to be good and you're going to go into the gutter. So if you're living under the law, you're living by the book but without the Spirit. So then we could be Christians like this. Also, Jews of the past, Jewish people of the past also had a notion of grace. It's a misunderstanding to think that Christians innovated the notion of grace. Christianity came out of Judaism. Grace comes from God, the God of Israel. Judaism understood, embraced, and still embraces the idea of God's grace. It is not a law of legalism at heart. But if you and I, as Christians, say God's grace covers everything, we may be falling into the gutter of false faith and cheap grace. Because if God's grace simply enables you to keep going in the gutter, you're still missing the mark, and that's not the point of God's grace. So some people would say, well, I'm done with it then. Enough. I can't fulfill it. I can't count on, on him fulfilling it, even though you can, but you feel like you can't because it doesn't seem to work. So I'll just be without the law. And what Paul says is that's actually what everyone has done. Everyone has turned away from God to try and find their own way to be good according to their own idea. But what we need to do is turn in to God, tune in to God, give over to God, and be justified by a law that lives within the law of faith. So, by the book is without the Spirit. Everyone who tries to fulfill the law by their own effort alone inevitably fails to fully uphold the terms of the law. Haven't you experienced this? You try to tell the truth, but you find yourself faltering in old patterns. Little white lies that, you know, 
well, it's kind of true in a way of speaking, or I can't tell them the truth because it would hurt their feelings, or I don't think it really matters to anyone, so it's okay if I just do this or say this. You know, that expense report, I could pad that just a little bit, or, you know, I know that I'm being reimbursed already for those miles, but I could claim that on my tax return. It's a little thing. Who sees? God sees. And so do you. And you know. And there are bigger things also. There are relationships that you continue to foster, even though you're thinking, that's not a right or righteous relationship for me to have. There are activities that you continue to indulge in, or things that you fail to do. It's easy, isn't it, to wake up on a Sunday morning and say, I don't have to really participate this time. I'm tired. God understands. Well, sure, but inside you feel the conviction that you know, I'm failing to live the way the Lord wants me to, but you also sense, I don't think I can achieve it on my own. So Paul talks about how in Judaism, there is this sense of you're, you're at the time among his, he's talking to his people. So this is a, a commentary to people within his category. He's saying, you think you've got the law and you train other people to live rightly. You're a guide to the blind. But why is it then that you are doing wrong. You preach against stealing, but do you steal? You say people shouldn't commit adultery, but do you? Do you harbor even that intention or that fantasy in your heart? You don't believe that there should be idolatry, but do you engage in idolatry? Do you benefit from idolatry? And then he quotes the ancient scriptures, the prophets who said God's name is blasphemed among the people of the world because of you. And this isn't just a commentary on Jews. It's a commentary on everybody who's a believer in God. And people could say the world looks at believers in God and says, are they any more honest? Are they any more righteous? Do they actually satisfy their own standard? What's one of the most common uh, critiques of Christians in the world, that we are hypocrites. Now, you and I could say, well, I don't think the standard of the world is appropriate, and I would agree with you that the scripture itself affirms that, but here God himself is saying, people look at you and blame me because you claim that you belong to me and your life doesn't reflect it. So that's a problem, right? And then Paul goes on to say, but the law the covenant of circumcision, was not about the written code, but about the spirit that is reflected in it. Now, people who are concerned about being blamed by the world also reveal that they have not understood their acclaim with God. Because what Paul says is, when you're living according to the spirit written in your heart, you won't care what people in the world say about you, because what you'll care about is what God says. It's God's judgment that will matter to you. So we need to fall on our knees in repentance and rely upon God's grace. But if you and I presume that that grace means that we can continue living according to our own ideas and our own sin, as I mentioned, we're going into the gutter and we're missing the mark. We're missing the purpose of God's faithfulness. Here's where Paul says, well, then if it's true that knowing the law is no particular help because you still fail the law, then what is the benefit of being people who know and have received the law. And he says, there's tremendous benefit. It's kind of like going into the bowling alley and saying, well, if the gutters keep you from reaching the goal, what is the benefit of the gutters? The gutters make the game. The gutters reveal the goal. The gutters show you where not to go. The Jewish people who received the words of God are the ones who have shown us what was right. 
How would we ever know our sin without that? How would we know that there would be a Savior? How would we know the promises of God, the premises of God, the personality of God? So let God be true and everyone else be a liar, right? God will be proved right. You can be sure of that. So if our unrighteousness makes God's righteousness all the more visible, what should we say about that? That it's not fair for him to judge us? But if that were true, how could he judge anything? That would be trying to pull God down into our gutter rather than letting him lift us up into his light. Someone might say, well, if my sinning increases his glory, then let me sin more. This is what we looked, about, looked at. Paul says, that's not right. In fact, that's just another way in which people could turn away from God. And the law reveals, it's revelation, how everyone has, got, has betrayed God and given in to sin. So Paul says, does anyone have any advantage then, Jew or Gentile? No. We have already said that Jews and Gentiles alike, think of it this way, Christians and non-Christians are all under the power of sin in our flesh. That is, believers and non-believers are all in the power, under the power of sin. We're born into that world. We live in that way. We have all failed in that way, way. What makes a Christian truly unique and different is that God's righteousness has been given to us through Christ. And that's an invitation available to everyone so that anyone can be made righteous. But we first have to recognize that no one will want to be righteous unless everyone recognizes that everyone has turned away from God. And here Paul mentions many, many scriptures that talks about what life looks like in the gutter. Deceitful, viperous, full of cursing, bitterness, violence, bloodshed, ruin, misery, no peace, no reverent fear. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, verse 19, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. In other words, the law makes it clear that's not the way to live, that is the way to die, and you cannot find life through unrighteousness. God's grace does not give you a pathway into life through unrighteousness. God's grace gives you a pathway into righteousness, and in righteousness is life. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by fulfilling the works of the law. Rather, the law will be fulfilled by God's righteousness alive in us. So, the law came so that we could know our need. So that we could see our sin. So that we could turn to God and be justified by faith. Faith fulfills the law, not through the achievement of our works, but rather through the achievement of God's works. Consider Ephesians 2.10. You are God's masterpiece. You are the goal. You are the prize. And God's works are done by you through the Spirit when you trust him by faith and he accounts it to you as righteousness. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And that, in fact, is what the law, the Torah, and all the prophets, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, were always looking towards. That's what they were leading towards. That's the goal. Those are the ten pins. The ten commandments are the ten pins. And the bowling of God's grace shows us the treasury available when you make contact with that purpose and that goal. 
righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your national background is. It doesn't matter your economic standing. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or the color of your hair or whether you're tall or short. It doesn't matter even what your background is. You have offered to you righteousness and life in Jesus Christ, justified by grace, received by faith, so as to demonstrate his righteousness in our world. So then no one can brag. No one can say, well, I know the truth and I've got the law and that's what makes me better. Why? Because of a law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. You see, the, the, the law itself can't get you to the goal, but it can show you where the goal is. Grace fills the gutters to keep you on track. And faith, faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things unseen. Faith, hope, and love abide. And the greatest of these, the goal at the end of the lane, is love, is God, is Christ. We're going to hear from Paul in weeks to come that the law is fulfilled in Christ. That the law is fulfilled in love, we are told in Romans 13. So, in fact, the law is God. And God is showing us the way to come into his life, to come into his love. When we receive by faith this truth, we do not cancel the law. We do not ignore the law. We do not critique and criticize the law. We fulfill the law. Or better to say, God fulfills the law in us. When it says we uphold the law, it means that it becomes a foundation for our lives. What's the foundation of your life today? What are you standing on? What are you aiming for? What are you moving towards? God has a goal for you, friends. He has a purpose for your life. And that purpose can only be found in him. It can only be known in him. And it can only be reached by him. You and I could never reach it on our own, much less know it. But his word in the scriptures, his testimony, his evidence throughout history, in his interactions with people, people faithful and unfaithful, people struggling and trying, people crying and hiding, people screaming and fighting, people living and dying, is a testimony of God's faithfulness. You and I have been unfaithful. We are sinners in need of a Savior. The law shows us that, but it doesn't enable us to fulfill it. But there is one who came to fulfill the law. There is one who came to reveal the Lord. There is one who came to give himself for you and I so that we could become the righteousness of God. And his name is Jesus the He's reaching out to you and I today. And he's saying, put your hand into mine. Put your heart into mine. Let me put my spirit into you. Let me write my law on your heart. There will be a circumcision. There will be a cutting away of flesh. There will be a trimming away of the past. There will be confrontation with things in the present that need to be changed. There will be a recognition that there are gutters on either side and there are traps and there is places to fail. But even if you fail, your faithlessness will not nullify God's faithfulness. So what can you do 
But every time you fail, turn to Him. And every time you turn to Him, trust in Him. And the more you trust in Him, the less you'll fail. And the more you'll know that when you do fail, you still have a God who has already covered your failure, already filled up your your gutters with His glory, already given you the strength to go on. Maybe it doesn't feel like it. Maybe it doesn't seem like it. But you can lay hold of it by faith. Faith knows what can't be seen. Faith holds what can't be held. Faith touches God because faith comes from God. And when our faith is in God, our faith is of God. Let the faith of the Lord touch you today. Let his righteousness flow into you. Let him liberate you from bondages of addictions and habits that you know aren't right, but you don't know how to stop. Let him cut you out of those things. Let him break those chains right now. Let him bring health to your body that is weak and weary. Let him bring strength to your mind that is dark and downcast. Let him bring hope to your heart that feels empty or anxious. Let him bring life to your death. Let him lift you out of the grave. Let him lift you out of the tomb. Let him lift you out of your sin. Let him lift you up in the light and push you on in his purpose. Let him be all that he is and he will make you into all you were meant to be, all you were made to be, which is far beyond anything that you and I could ask, hope, or think. It's already been achieved for you in the death and the resurrection of Christ. So die to yourself and let him resurrect you in him. Lord, we trust you today. We ask that the law of faith would be at work in us. We ask that our faith would fulfill the law. We ask that you would liberate us from legalism and that you would also, Lord, give us that that grace that is not cheap, that is not casual, but that is truly glorious. That we would never presume upon your grace, but instead that we would stand upon your grace. Not to do those things which are wrong, but to be made, Lord, to do those things which are right. We can't do it on our own, but with you, we can't fail. If you are for us, Lord God, who or what could be against us? What can separate us from you if you have laid hold of us? So we lay hold of you who have already laid hold of us today. And friend, if you're praying that prayer for the first time, make this confession. Or if you're already walking with the Lord, make it again today. Repeat this after me. Lord Jesus Christ, I give my life to you. I ask for faith. I ask for your righteousness. Forgive me when I fail. Forgive me when I ignore you. Draw me close to you. Make my focus to be on you. Help me to walk in your ways. I love you, Lord. Amen.